Hey everyone, we've got a great interview with Trisha Hirschberger, digital content creator, social influencer, gaming and tech reviewer, online personality. This girl can do everything. She's got over half a million followers online and is also just a really interesting, thoughtful person. We're gonna talk about influencer marketing. We're gonna talk about what it's like to grow up in the, the culture of all things geek and how that's evolved uh, in 2019 from what it once was. And we're also gonna cover how YouTube specifically has really shifted the paradigm for content creators over the last decade. So check it out, great interview, hope you enjoy. Hey, Trisha, how are you? I'm so good, Jess. How are you? I'm so good. And I have so many things that I want to ask you about. Uh, so first off, I love, love how diverse your online brand has become. Um, and I, I think for those that don't know, you know, you've got a presence on all of the usual social media suspects, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, but also on the online gaming platform, Twitch. And I love Twitch. Awesome. And you co-host multiple tech shows, right? So Geek and Sundry, Newegg, Kingston Tech, all those places you have presence on. It's a lot. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm all over the place. And uh, I went from being full-time with a few outlets back-to-back to, back to kind of realizing the social media world is really the digital wild, wild west. And we all have the ability to do it for ourselves. And so I jumped out on my own, founded my own production company, and have been freelance, uh, freelance as a digital content producer, host, writer, et cetera, since then. It's been great. And so how long has it been that you've been in the biz as a content creator? I tripped and fell into the digital content scene in 2012. Okay. So it's been seven years now, which in in digital terms is pretty old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, You're a veteran. You know, I, I run into I run into people in the street that are like, "Oh my gosh, Trisha Hirschberger! I watched you all the time in high school." That's awesome. <laughs> so I'm now they're functioning adults. <laughs> well, I remember when you and I were together, we had had breakfast or coffee, and we were it was near Comic Con, and remember someone came up to you just on the corner in San Diego, and they knew who you were, which maybe that happens to you all the time, but. You were so kind and so gracious, and they wanted to get a photo. And I, I realized, like this, this is this is your life. Like you're recognized just out in the public. Yeah, I feel like I'm in that sweet spot where most places I go, I'm not recognized, so I can still go to the grocery store without, you know, having washed my hair or whatever and be okay. Uh, although it's happened to me that I've done that. And those are the times I've been spotted. Yeah. But there are certain places like a San Diego Comic-Con or an E3 where the community there is more likely to have seen my content. Mm -hmm. And then there's a higher chance that, <laughs> that people will know me totally. for sure. So, but so, it's always fun when they do. Yeah. I find it so very flattering. It's always fun. Well, and and again, you were so good and gracious and kind and spent a good five or 10 minutes with them taking photos. And I thought that was just such, such a lovely thing to observe. Um, and so, so let's talk about, like, you're a social influencer, content creator. I know the word influencer kind of gets wrapped up in a lot of stuff. So we'll come back to that in a second. Um, but one of the things I love about you is that you marry kind of a stage presence, kind of a charisma with technical knowledge, right? A, a chunk of what you do is about mobile tech and gaming and that, you know, that takes some chops to be able to speak to the technology side. So we don't always see that 
combination of, um, you know, both sort of the wisdom and the smarts, but also the charisma and the stage presence. How did you, how did you become in the very beginning, how did you become a content creator or social influencer? how did you even get into that space? Um, well, I think I kind of had the perfect storm of backstory for those things that you're saying, which thank you very much. Those are all very kind <laughs> things that you've said. I promise I didn't pay you before we recorded this podcast. <laughs> those things. Um, but I, I was a theater nerd who also played a lot of video games. And I played a lot of PC games specifically. So I had to learn how to upgrade my RAM and make my PC able to play the games that I wanted to play simultaneously with being someone who really liked performing and being on stage. So I, I got a theater degree, a classical theater degree, uh, which is hilarious because no one pays you to do Greek and Shakespeare, just in case anyone is listening, <laughs> thinking about doing that as their career, just a heads up. Uh, so I, I graduated college with my classical theater degree and moved to Los Angeles to start auditioning and pursue a career in entertainment. And I, I was quirky before quirky was cool, I guess, is the best way to say it. So I would go into auditions and, uh, you know, they'd be trying to fit me into a certain type and they'd have a really hard time doing that mm -hmm. because the things that I'm passionate about are things that are supremely uncool. Mm -hmm. And whether it was a hosting audition or an acting audition, you know, they're like, well, can you be, we, we see, like, could you be the funny slutty friend? And I'm like, I don't really know that, like, I feel like you're going to find other people in LA that might be better suited to that than me, yeah. just my energy and the way that I come off. And I was right because they had a really hard time casting me in anything. I had a casting director at one point say, um, I feel like you're really Nickelodeon and Disney from the neck up, but from the neck down, I want to put you on Spike. And someone was like, oh, you'll grow into your face eventually, or your face will grow into your body eventually. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. Um, but one day I tripped and fell into YouTube and digital content creation, one of the many auditions that I went to because I was very persistent and just kept trying. They said it was for an online news show. And so I prepared my little index cards with my three news stories on it. And I went in for this audition. And after I finished my news stories, they said, okay, great. Uh, do you play video games? And I was like, yeah, yes, yes, I do, as a matter of fact. And they asked me what I knew about technology and gadgets. And at the time, my day job that paid my bills was working in marketing for Samsung's IT department. So I just happened to have every Samsung IT product that I was repping at that time in my bag. So I could like take them all off, it, all out of the bag in this audition and be like, well, would you like to know about this or this or this or this? Um, and then they were asking me, you know, what books I read, what TV shows I watch, all this stuff. And I left that audition thinking, I don't know what they were actually casting for because I'm pretty sure it wasn't a news show, but I also think I nailed it. So it was very fortuitous yeah. that I happened be the unique person that I am in the right place at the right time. And uh, it ended up being a channel that was one of the YouTube original channels when YouTube gave a lot of funding to celebrities and their major content creators to create new channels. 
a channel called SourceFed was born, uh, the brainchild of YouTuber Philip DeFranco. And so SourceFed was the channel that was casting. And I found out later the reason they were asking me all those funny questions was because they wanted to launch a SourceFed nerd spinoff channel about six months down the road. Mm. So they brought me on initially as uh, for the news channel, which ended up being very um, entertainment oriented, but also we talked about the news. So you would learn something, but it was mostly funny. Mm-hmm. And I did that for a while and then branched off to help develop all the content and launch the channel that would become SourceFed Nerd. And it was a wild ride. I was I, We got bought out by Discovery and I was at that organization for three years as a full-time writer, host, producer. Mm. And so even though my degree was in classical theater and I was used to the in front of the camera job uh, requirements, this was really a trial by fire, get thrown into it. I know you don't have an interest in journalism, but you do now. And you probably have never edited before, but guess what? You're going to learn how to edit and give notes on edits. And you're going to learn marketing and SEO and distribution and Photoshop for Photoshopping your thumbnails. And you're going to write all your own scripts. Like it was like, oh, and PS, you're making five to 10 videos a day. Have fun. Um, Wow. Boot camp. It was boot camp. Yeah, it really was. Uh, But I was there for three years and it taught me everything that I had then used to create my career on all of these different platforms. So it was a wild ride. But yeah, that channel, I actually was just filming with some of my old colleagues from that channel earlier today. They have a new channel that they work on together that's like an absurdist comedy channel, kind of lifestyle channel. And I went over there and filmed uh, like a movie trivia show with them and some other really fun stuff. And they're dear friends to this day because we went through all of that craziness together. Well, Um, and and what to you, I think the word (laughs) fortuitous, I mean, as a foundation, which then later led you to become an independent content creator and have, you know, all of these own, your properties that you sort of run on your own. Um, what a great um, sort of period of training, you know, editing and again, Photoshop and marketing and mm-hmm. like the platform search, all those things are fundamental, I bet, to what you do today. A hundred percent. Yes. Um, it was a wonderful, wonderful learning opportunity. And like I said, we were working in the same office and sometimes working with Philip DeFranco, who's a wonderful resource to learn from. And we, we were very fortunate in that we won two streamy awards in that time. Like the channel got very big, very quickly. And it was at a time that there's much, there was much less competition on YouTube then than there is now, not to say that it was easy by any means because it wasn't, but it was a very, very different environment to come into. than it is now. And we were funded by YouTube for the first two years, which is not a thing that exists anymore. So I had a very different experience getting into digital content creation than a lot of people did. I did not start by making videos in my basement and build up a thing. I, I came from this crazy experiment that Google was doing and SourceFed and SourceFed Nerd were one of the few successful channels that by the time YouTube stopped funding, we were self-sustainable. Mm-hmm. I think there were only like one or two that came out of it that were, but we were one of them. Wow. So it was really lovely. And, and yeah, I, I've also made great use of the YouTube space right here in Los Angeles to learn the things that maybe I wasn't so hands-on with. Like at SourceFed, I didn't do a ton of my own editing. We had incredibly talented editors that could churn stuff out faster than anyone I've ever seen to date. We had to give edit notes. So we had to be aware of how it worked, but we weren't doing the actual grind of it where 
when I went on my own, I then had to take over all responsibilities because I was running solo. And the YouTube space, if you have more than 10,000 subscribers on your YouTube channel, offers free classes in lighting, editing, cinematography, business strategy, uh, YouTube copyright law, like everything that you need to know. And so I made use of all of those resources as well. And that's there in LA, isn't it? Yeah, they have one in LA. Um, I I don't know where they all are now. I want to say there's three or four of them, but like I, there's York. a few that are overseas. I think one that's in New York. It's great. Yeah, it's an excellent resource if anyone listening happens to live near one of them. Yeah. So that's that's a great segue. So sort of you got this awesome foundation, kind of had you know call it the support of the the ye old days of YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you said I'm going to go out on my own. And so talk to talk to me about how. How does production work today? And, and, and maybe set aside the, the where you're kind of co-hosting some of these shows where I know you have some good support infrastructure, but if you're just doing your own thing or working with brands um, on content creation, how does production work start to finish? And what, what do you do versus what do you outsource to others? Uh, well, it completely depends on the budget. <laughs> I bet. So yeah, if you have no budget, you're doing it all yourself with equipment that you own or can borrow from a friend, or if you're lucky enough to have creative friends that just have free time and want to help you, that's awesome. I know a lot of creators have that. I don't generally have that. All of my creative friends are working professionals. So if I'm going to book them out for the day at what they get paid to do, I like to pay them. I feel like that's respectful. Um, So even if they cut me a friends and family rate or whatever, you know, um, if the budget exists to hire my friends to work on it together, then I like to have a collaborative effort. But over the years, uh, I have amassed some, you know, a pretty decent studio that I run out of my home office. And so I have a lighting kit. I have a camera. I've invested in a teleprompter. I have my streaming set up if I'm going to be live streaming video games. And so with the resources that I have available to me, I will produce the highest quality content I can. And really what that looks like start to finish is uh, communicating with a brand settling on a uh, pre-production concept that everyone's on board with. So, you know, like, you know, these are the expectations of the brand. These are the expectations of the collaborator. We think we can meet in the middle by doing this specific thing. Okay, great. Let's execute it. Um, And then you have your production day, which for me, if I can hire a cameraman, (laughs) that's so nice because when you are trying to film yourself, A lot of times that can be a a very long and arduous process because you, you know, hit record on the camera. You, I I have like a Jessica rabbit figurine that I use as my stand in to focus the camera in the right spot. And then I'll move her and I'll go stand in the right spot and film it only to put the footage, dump the footage into my computer later and realize my arm went out of frame six times or half my head was cut off or there was a weird glare that I couldn't see in the tiny viewfinder, like something wrong. And then I have to reshoot the whole thing. Yeah takes forever. It's so much easier if I have someone helping me. So if I can get a camera person, they can just watch audio levels and run the camera and make sure nothing disastrous happens. That's great. Um, And then if I have budget to hire an editor after the fact, I love to do that because like I said, I have some very, very talented editing editor friends that really you can see their creativity come out in the edit. And I am what I call a functional editor. I can edit and get you to the final product, but that's not the part that I enjoy. So I don't feel like I have a lot of personality or pizzazz that comes out in the edit when I edit. Yeah. And maybe I'm extra hard on myself because I feel like I have worked with some of the best. 
But uh, when, uh, when I can employ my very talented friends, I do. But normally it's for someone to shoot it and someone to edit it so that I can focus on the pre-production, the on-camera portion, and then going through and giving editing notes until it gets to the point where I feel like this is appropriate to hand over to the brand as a first look. And then usually the brand has one or two rounds of edits yep. that you hope are only uh, edit notes. Yep. And please reshoot this notes because then you have to start the process all over. And I've had that happen where I've exhausted all my budget on the first shoot and don't have the budget to hire someone for the second reshoot. And then you just make do with what you can. And if it ends up being a super long day or super long couple days or whatever it is, then that's what it is. But with every partnership and with every new deal that you create, you learn a little bit more and you readjust what your contract terms are moving forward. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. And, and you make it happen. You make it happen to the best of your ability. And every platform is a little different. And, you know, now we've got IGTV and people asking you to shoot vertically. Or sometimes they'll say, like a brand will say, put this across all platforms. And they specify Facebook, YouTube, IGTV, and, you know, Snapchat or whatever. And you kind of have to come back and say, well, just so you know, IGTV and Snapchat are vertical video. And these others are landscape. Mm -hmm. So that's actually two separate productions. It's not really, here's one video that I can just blast out everywhere. That's two separate videos that you're asking for. Yep. Um, and have that dialogue ahead of time. Yeah, I was just going to ask. So once you get, let's just say that they're okay with it being horizontal. Let's just call it one video. You finally get to the place where you've gone back and forth. You've incorporated the edits. You feel good. You've got a finished piece. Then what mm -hmm. are, what are your, how do you distribute? What's your sort of marketing chapter that comes after the content is done? Um, for me, it's finding the correct post date and time that most of your audience is awake and active on that specific platform and putting together a zippy caption or description, which also needs to be approved by the brand nine times out of 10. So you make sure you've got everyone tagged and you try to put it into terms that are as natural to your voice as possible so that you don't get that knee-jerk reaction from your community of like, oh, you're just giving me an ad. Right. You know, you, you want to make this something that you gen genuinely believe in. And I will tell you, after having worked on some of these projects for a hundred hours, it is something I am living and breathing and believing in because I've put so much work into it. Um, and then, you know, you find that time and then you make it live. And once you make it live, I usually spend about a half hour to an hour afterwards mediating comments or replies and, um, you know, really being involved in the community. So if say I post a video on a new smartphone that just came out and there are people in the comment section asking me questions about my experience with that smartphone, I'm actively there responding to them yep. in that moment because then they, I feel like then it, they definitely get that like, oh, this is real. Trisha actually cares about this. This isn't just a branded content yeah. push out. Um, but, you know, I feel like a lot of the reception of it has to do with the negotiations with the brand in the very beginning. You can tell from the very beginning conversations if this is going to be a collaboration or if you're speaking with a brand that just wants a commercial that you post on your site. And there's, it, that's a very, very different thing. Do you, like what percentage of the time would you say... It, I just want a commercial versus someone who actually really sees you as a collaborator. I think brands are getting smarter, thank goodness. Uh, but it used to be, I it would, it used to be probably sixty five percent of the time you'd get brands asking for a commercial, mm -hmm. and now I would say it's probably closer to thirty percent of the time. 
So it's gotten a lot Good. better. And and the 30% of the time, most of the time it's because brands are are kind of new at this. Right. And they just don't really understand. Yeah. Um, and you know, and they think from a more traditional mindset of, you know, well, if I'm sponsoring this video, I want you to say all my things and do it exactly my way because that's why I'm sponsoring this. Um, and then I feel like it's up to the creator to educate the brand that that's great. Uh, but you, what you're actually sponsoring, let me break down the production costs and how this works and how much it's going to cost me to create this video for you. And if I'm going to put the, my name and face and voice on this, it also needs to meet my standards and be natural for my community. And if you can't make that conversation work in the beginning, then that's a hard pass for me. It always has been. It's been a, you know, thank you so much. It's not going to work on this campaign. Maybe we'll talk in the future. Yeah. Well, and, and obviously the other piece that you bring besides just the beautiful content creation is the fact that you know the social channels backward and forward, and probably you know them better at times than some of your brand partners do, especially if they're new at this. And so you're, I would think you would be in a position where you would be able to inform and consult with them about, you know, look, if I shoot it this way, you're going to get more engagement. So how about we make a compromise here? Oh, yes. There are a lot of times when I go back to a brand and say, well, what are your KPIs for this campaign? Are you looking for engagement here? Are you looking for maximum views or impressions? Yep. What is your goal? And a lot of times they'll come back and say, well, all of those things. Right. And you have to explain, that's a lovely dream, uh, but really you're going to craft a post that's going to excel in one or the other. Mm -hmm. You may get one that does very well in both, but generally it's going to be targeted towards a specific goal. Yep. Um, and yeah, so exactly like you said, kind of educating them on the different platforms, what works better on other platforms than others, as far as posting time. Like I forget, I worked with someone recently, um, or maybe I didn't end up working with them. I forget, but I was in negotiations with someone that wanted something like seven or eight in-feed Instagram posts on a day and mm. like two Instagram stories. That's a lot. And I was like, okay, great. So normally on Instagram, you want to prioritize, uh, if you're going to do quantity, you want more stories right. and quality, but less in-feed. Um, and so there's always that conversation as well. Yeah, right. Because Instagram's gotten relatively complex, right? You've got kind of three paradigms. You've got the feed, the traditional, you know, good old Instagram feed. Then you've got stories, which again, mm -hmm. we all know 24 hours, it's ephemeral. It doesn't last. You can kind of be a little more playful there. And then you've got IGTV, which I know is kind of an experiment, but it's there as a third, almost a third platform within Instagram. Yep. A lot to think about. Yeah. yeah, there is a lot to think about now. And it's funny because for those of us who work in social media, and Jess, I'll be interested to hear if you feel the same way, anytime a new platform or uh, a new major feature like IGTV comes out, I know a lot of us are just like, oh, what now? <laughs> What's this other thing I have to keep up with now? Because there's so many. If you really do diversify, there are so many. And there are times when I'm most definitely envious of people that I am an Instagram person. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, you just get to focus on one. Yeah. That's awesome for you. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, I'm a YouTuber, I'm a Twitch streamer, whatever it is that's your one thing. Uh, well, and yeah. And the platforms, yeah. And the platforms change the rules too. I mean, every, I'd say every 
six to 18 months, there is a, a, a pretty marked shift, whether it's in organic reach, whether it's in, uh-huh. you know, oh, we're all about video, whether it's um, even just the transition that happened quite a few years back from text, really text-based social to visual-based and then visual mm-hmm. to video, right? Those are big leaps. And to the content that's being actually um, put forth and sort of given airtime has changed. And so it's, it's, it's not only just the number of platforms and then even like we were just saying with Instagram, these sub platforms within, but then the rules are changing. It's very fluid. And so it's, it's a lot to stay on top of as a creator. Yeah. The algorithms are always changing for sure. I actually just got an email from Twitch today that said your profile, your profile pic is changing shape soon. So they're changing the layout, which means you'll have to upgrade all of your channel art and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah, constant changes. But I like to be a player on multiple platforms because then I feel like when something happens like the collapse of Vine, all your eggs aren't in the same basket. You're not as heavily dependent on it. I know a lot of Vine professionals that were successfully able to switch over to Instagram Mm -hmm. um, as the next closest visual medium. But it can be very scary if your entire livelihood is, say, built on YouTube and something happens and your YouTube channel gets shut down. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. So I've always, I've always liked kind of, you know, it's interesting because you talk to some people that'll say, oh, well, all my followers are on YouTube, but then I have these other platforms that I don't care about, but my big numbers are on YouTube. I've never had the luxury of saying like, oh, I am a this platform person as my major, because kind of all of my platforms are sitting around the same numbers. Like I'm kind of even keeled across the board. Uh, So it gives, it certainly gives me a bigger workload to keep up with all of them, but it makes me feel more comfortable that I'm diversified. Right. Well, it's like, it's like your investment strategy in your, in your career. You're, you're, you have a diversified portfolio. You're not all in one (laughs) stock. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> Very smart. Very smart. Um, so this is a good segue to YouTube because we've touched a little bit on YouTube. Obviously, you've got a presence there um, as, a, as a creator. I, I think almost all do. But I know that YouTube has shifted. And I'd like to hear your take on this kind of, you know, we talked a bit, a bit about how you got started back in the day when they actually used to fund original content and kind of support creators um, in a big way. And I, I know they still do. Obviously, we talked about them having these kind of um, uh, areas of learning and education in multiple cities. And uh, I don't mean to say that YouTube's doing nothing for creators, but it does seem like they've made a transition. And I know this is kind of a pain point for a lot of creators too, in terms of the monetization model shifting. But explain, let's just start from the beginning. Like what was YouTube say five, six, seven years ago versus what is it today? Uh, I think it was a market shift from supporting the small creators and the people who were making content for them on a daily basis and from a very organic, natural, everyday citizen place and shifting that to the television professionals, the music professionals, the people who are already making mainstream content, but would also put it on YouTube. So now, like if you go to Upfronts, for example, and you hear who YouTube praises as their top creators, it's Jimmy Kimmel. It's all the Vivo music videos from, I don't know, BTS or One Direction or whoever, mm-hmm. Taylor Taylor Swift, whoever the hot music person is at the time. And that's a very, very different feel than what it was back in the day when it was, oh man, 
in the news sector, we've got Philip DeFranco and the Young Turks and like all these people really killing it that are just trying to do good news, but they're like everyday people yeah. that are doing this. Isn't that great? Uh, and so I think a lot of creators who it's funny to even say that creators under a million subscribers are kind of considered small creators or at least feel that way in terms of how YouTube treats them. If you're not in that 1% that's earning higher AdSense, you get very little support from YouTube. Uh, it's not like they're going to feature you on the front page or trending or suggest you in the sidebar. Like they're not doing you any favors mm -hmm. unless you can read that, reach that upper echelon on your own. And now that being said, that can certainly still be done. That can really be done by paying attention to SEO and uh, really studying your analytics and becoming a master of your own analytics and what to shift and change on a very minute level to make that happen for you. But that is not what it was before. Before it was focus on making great content and we will do our best to help support you in that. And even the YouTube space that you mentioned, it offers these classes, um, but it also has big soundstage spaces that were meant to say like, hey, YouTubers, you can come in and use this professional soundstage and rent this professional equipment to make your stuff look that much better. And I can tell you, at least in LA, can't use stage two because Jack Black's shooting there. Mm. Uh, One Direction's shooting in stage three. Mm -hmm. And while it's cool for them to be able to say, hey, this is the stage Jack Black shot on, that is pretty cool, but that doesn't help your small creators in LA. Yeah. So it's so, become more of a celebrity play, more of a, a kind of a, like you said, a top 1% mainstream um, kind of big name play versus a let's nurture kind of the next generation of creators. Yeah, I think from a business standpoint, YouTube felt burned by investing in a lot of different creators that they can't control or that aren't vetted as we see, you know, scandal after scandal go down. And so their thought was, you know, if we stick with the vetted tried and true uh, big players, we know we're not going to deal with that on the same level or something like that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, plus, YouTube has been trying to play in the television game for a while now right. with their YouTube Red original higher budget content with some of their biggies um, and just trying to have big YouTube stars transition to traditional television. And no one's really found that sweet spot of making that work yet. But I think as YouTube is trying really hard to compete with traditional television, they're losing a lot of what creators really loved about the platform yeah. in the first place. Yeah. Because it, it, it is almost as hard as breaking into TV now. Right, right. You know, it, it doesn't feel like this is a platform where I can get discovered. Now, that being said, they have done a few things in the recent years that I think were a good move on their part as far as helping creators. They uh, borrowed some things from Twitch, which were working very well on Twitch, like channel memberships, um, the ability to uh, work donations into things. Now they're doing uh, merchandise directly through YouTube, I believe. There's a lot of that kind of stuff now that they're like, well, here, but if you can't monetize using, like if we're not helping you earn a living, maybe your community can. Right is how they're shifting it, which a lot of people have very mixed feelings about asking their community for funding. Right. But I think the, at least a lot of the YouTubers I know that are in more of that kind of medium level where they're not, YouTube is not supporting them enough to earn a living off that. And they're not making the big bucks from that. A lot of them are Patreon funded. A lot of them are community funded and that's how they are able to produce the content that they want to produce. But 
yeah, it wasn't that way six years ago that you had to necessarily swap to community funding. So it's, it's definitely seen a big change. And for me in particular, and I have other creator friends that feel differently, but for me in particular, it has really made me pull back from YouTube because it's not worth my time. Mm -hmm. YouTube in particular takes a lot more production time because people expect YouTube content to be more polished now that you are competing with the Jimmy Kimmels and these very, very professional productions. They want it to look like it had a $10,000 budget when really you might spend two full work days working on that with even if you do everything yourself and don't pay yourself and whatever, uh, may, maybe a six, six to $700 budget to try to make it look competitive. And from your ad, your Google AdSense, you'll may, maybe we'll get $2 back in return. So, so if you're looking at it as a, as a business, it's poor ROI to spend your time on YouTube. Totally. Unless you're in that top, top, top percent or you're community funded or it's a branded sponsored video. So I really only post to my YouTube channel now once or twice a month yeah. anymore. I'm, I'm there to still have a presence for my community who does not follow me on other platforms, but I am much more interested as a creator in playing on the other platforms right now. So you mentioned a couple of things I want to just um, kind of double click on just for our audience. Again, audience for the for social currency is often, um, you know, it might be entrepreneurs, business leaders, folks that perhaps aren't deep, deep on digital marketing. Um, so just to kind of go back to um, use the word AdSense, I like to just explain what that is. And again, how that maybe has shifted um, the quote unquote attraction to brand deals or partnerships with, um, with companies. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So AdSense is, uh, to boil it down into like very, very, uh, simple terms when they run an ad before your video and you can choose to have it monetized. And that's what it means. They'll run a certain type of ad before your video, mid video end video, whatever you choose you will get a very, very small cut of whatever that company paid YouTube to have its ads be seen. And uh, it, you know, it boils down to different genres, different channels all have different CPMs or cost per thousand views, cost per meal. Um, and you, that's how you make money as a YouTube creator traditionally. Very, very basic understanding. You make a video, they run ads on it, you get a small cut of it. And AdSense now is for, unless you're in that top 0.01% is unlivable for most creators. It's not, and not only is it unlivable as far as paying your bills for a lot of people, it's unsustainable as far as even funding the content you're creating. Mm -hmm. So you're losing money creating the content just to make it mm -hmm. for the amount that gets paid back to you. And I, it, I don't remember it being like that six, seven years ago. There was this idea that if I put something on the internet and enough people like it and enough people watch it, I could maybe pay my rent off my cool YouTube videos. Yeah. And the expectation then wasn't to have these super, super highly produced television quality videos either. It was much more acceptable to talk to your webcam in your basement yeah. about whatever you wanted 
And that's what a YouTube video was. So as everything has shifted, and I certainly understand it from Google and YouTube's perspective that as the company has grown, they want the company to do bigger and better things and they need to worry about liability. And I completely get it from the business aspect, but it has definitely taken a toll on the creator point of view. Yeah. So what what percentage you might have been getting five, six, seven years ago through AdSense, um, was it a, you know, a revenue stream? Maybe you couldn't pay your entire rent, but it was a, a healthy revenue stream, it sounds like. And now it's perhaps pennies on the dollar and, and almost negligible. Yeah, that that's very accurate. I would say I let let's just I'm just throwing out example numbers here, but say I don't know, back in the day if I got a hundred thousand views on something, that might make me four hundred bucks. Now if I get a hundred thousand views on something, it's like, here's fifty-two bucks. Yeah. Like, wow, that's really different. Right. <laughs> Thank you though. I can take my family to In and Out tonight. <laughs> right. Yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, and that's if I didn't pay anyone to help me make this video. Right. Cool, cool. Right, 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 right. <laughs> you just listen to social currency. Social Currency is the marketing podcast covering the hottest digital and social media marketing topics that matter for your business now. With hosts myself, Tuck Ross and Jessica Jensen, you can find us at Tuck Ross and at Jessica K. Jensen on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. If you want to know more about the show, hit us up on socialcurrencyshow.com. Listen up on Apple Podcasts, on your desktop or phone, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, Anchor, Alexa. And you can post love on the social with hashtag social currency show. If you love it, leave us a five-star review on any of these platforms. And if you have a suggestion for the show, hit us up on info at socialcurrencyshow.com, whether it's a topic or want to be a guest. Jess and I love doing this every week. We love getting involved with you and we love your feedback. So tell us what you're thinking about this is your social currency.